Welcome to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. Today's segment is The Creative Elixir with Mia Robinson. We also have a very special guest today, so please continue listening to the full episode. This podcast is powered by the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, and we would like you to remember the information shared on the Vitamin SC3 podcast is for informational or educational purposes only and does not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. To become a member of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium, visit sicklecellconsortium.org. The Sickle Cell Consortium is a collaborative designed a little bit like the United Nations in theory so that we can bring together many organizations for sickle cell throughout the country and now throughout the world as well as um, independent patient caregiver leaders, opinion leaders, advocates, those that are active in this space. And our goal is, what we've always done, is bring our community together so that we can create projects, priorities, initiatives. We can figure out what are the problems, needs, and gaps in the sickle cell community, and then figure out how we're going to collectively address this. Welcome back, people. This is Mia Robinson with the Creative Elixir with the Sickle Cell Consortium. And today I have a very special guest. Um, it is your favorite advocate. And if it's not your favorite advocate, it's probably your favorite advocate's favorite advocate. So Demetrius Wyant, also known as AR the Prophet. How are you today? Blessings. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. I'm good. I'm good. I called your particular session young and black with many talents. <laughs> and we'll we'll get into that in a second. Talking about um, young, black and talented and your best taste catering and things like that. But I want to start with your childhood story growing up with sickle cell. We all have that story. So what was yours like? So mine was uh, uh, very painful, uh, literally a trial and error, what I like to describe mine as. So uh, I come from Des Moines, Iowa, born and raised in the Midwest, and I was like one of very few, probably one of two um, black patients that were seen with sickle cell in the Des Moines area. So um, the uh, education and the... Uh, the knowledge of sickle cell was just not there just because something they haven't practiced and they haven't seen it in a lot of patients. So, um, everything that I went through was trial and error. Uh, suffered a lot. I had my first surgery at eight. I got my appendix removed. Um, so, from there, it was like a, it was like a thinking on itself, you know. Um, everything that the doctors gave me, you know, we, we took, we took the advice of the doctors, any medication that they prescribed us. You know, we didn't do any extra research. When I say we, I mean like my family. Um, we never did any extra research. We never looked up any uh, holistic medicine. We never looked up any natural alternatives. So everything that I went through was just because the doctor said this is what they believe that I should be doing, that I should be taking. So I kind of, I kind of grew up like it was rough for me. I stayed in the hospital. I lived in the hospital. That's how I always like to describe it. Um, I missed a lot of birthdays, a lot of holidays, a lot of events. And uh, just simply trying to figure out what was going on with myself. I knew it wasn't normal. 
And uh, yeah, so that's how it was for my childhood. I kind of wish that I, uh, I kind of wish that I had a little more insight in what was going on with me as far as illness. And I wish I had a little more professionals around me that was more educated, so I didn't go down the road that I went down. So. But I always, I always believe that everything that was meant for me is for me. The road that was paid for me, the road that I took, was uh, supposed to be that way. You know, the journey. And, uh, God get the glory in the end at all times. So, you know, uh, I can always, I can tell people, when I was 15, I was uh, removed from pediatrics. So, uh, at 15 years of age, I had to go to adult care because I had prior prison when I was 15. So at the age of 15, and I had this painful erection that was going on that nobody knew, well, you know, nobody understood it, what was going on with me at the time. So they just wanted to keep giving me medication after medication. They felt like I should be seeing a, a neurologist because, you know, to my, like, this isn't a pediatric matter, you know, he's more of a man, he's born in the hood, this is, he needs to see a neurologist. So, at 15 years of age, I was seeing a doctor. doctors. We had to search for a urologist and a hematologist and all those other doctors. So it was, it was, it was different. It was rough. And we didn't have no, no, nobody in my family was ever sick. Like my mom and dad, they had to trait, but, you know, they've never felt the effects of where they had to be hospitalized and all that. So they didn't really have any knowledge. They just lived their life like they were regular beings. So that's, that's my worst when you come to Yeah. And I think a lot of us have learned through trial and error. Same story. You know, my mom was the same way. Is If this is what the doctor said, then this is what we're doing. There was no more thought into how to manage it naturally. Thankfully here, we did have a, um, he wasn't a naturopathic doctor, but he promoted the alternative lifestyle at the foundation here. So we were able to get like some bits and pieces from him. Um, but then also people thought he was the crazy one that just <laughs> didn't want people to drink Gatorade and this, that, and the other. So, but he had, he was very adamant about hydrating and not drinking all the dye and just eating right and stuff like that. But as a kid, sometimes you don't, you want to eat what you want to eat. You want to do what you want to do. <laughs> You're not trying to hear that. Don't take my Doritos. I don't want no apple. You know what I'm saying? You're not there as a kid. So, yes, trial and error. As we've gotten older, we, we know better. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the priapism thing because I was going to definitely ask you about that and how you um, started the Save the Mail Trunks campaign. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So, like I stated, when I was 15, that's when my priapism started. Um, at that time, it was called intermittent cry prison, which was also known as stuttering cry prison, which is coming and going. It's not so frequent. Um, it's like the, the beginning stages of cry prison for people living in the city, for males living in the city. So. And uh, that's when it started at 15, this painful erection, come and go, and I just never understood it. I never, um, I knew it was, I knew, I knew it had to be a part of civil stuff because it was just, it was, it was painful. It wasn't that regular, natural. You know what I'm saying? Like, naturally, men, we wake up with a hard on. Like, that's natural. That's because that's what the body's supposed to do. That's what it does. Um, but for me, it was a painful erection at night. And 
it wasn't normal. It was waking me up out of the middle of the night and I find myself like doing exercises, running around the house, all outside, walks, and just to get it to go down. And I was like, man, this can't be normal. So again, with that, everything was trial and error. Like I never had a doctor to talk to. I wasn't able to look up on YouTube to see anything that was going on, nobody's story. Nobody was ever talking about their experience with fire prison. So that's kind of how all of that happened. And I was 28. Um, I was living in Atlanta. When it first started, I was living in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was doing a sleep study. And they were giving me a sleep study because they thought I needed oxygen at night because I was having sleep apnea. Like, I was breathing really well. came to sleep, and uh, it would make me uh, throw off my sleep patterns. So I was doing a sleep test to see if I would need oxygen at night. During the sleep study, I didn't even sleep one minute. But I had fire prison came on, and <laughs> it was so weird. I was 15 years of age, and the doctor's like, yeah. okay, Mr. Warren. I, I had to be like 2 in the morning, and the doctor's like, okay, Mr. Warren, uh, when are you going to start, you know, get ready to go to sleep? You know, this is a sleep study. And literally, like, I had a wretched that was just standing straight up, like, through the covers, all of that. And I'm like, you know, right now I'm really uncomfortable. My mom was there. She came in and she was like, Stan, what's going on? You can't sleep. She was already asleep. She woke up because she heard over the intercom the doctor say, you know, it's time to get some sleep. And uh, she came in and said, what's going on? And that's when we first discovered the doctor actually had came in with her. And uh, I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I can't sleep because of this erection. And it was hard and it was cold and it was like, in pain. And then the doctor was like, look, I think we should, we should stop this and we should take it to the ER because this is a serious matter. And when he said that, we knew that it was something other than just uh, erection. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so from there, I consult with my specialist and um, we talked about it, but still it was coming and going. So it wasn't, we couldn't really pinpoint it. We couldn't really do too much about it because it would come. I mean, like, three months later, I would never have nothing and it would come back. So it was, like, real-time periods where it would come and go. And that's what it's called, uh, intermittent slash stuttering fire. So what happened was, what happened was I wasn't able to get the proper care and the proper information in the times of the stuttering fire prison, which advanced it to, uh, uh, which advanced that to, uh, Ischemic prior prison. Uh, so ischemic prior prison is less blood flow. So it's like a it's like a chart. You know, you get the baseline, and then after a while, if you don't you don't you don't get a hold on it, gradually it just starts getting worse and worse and starts coming back. And that's what was happening to me because I wasn't able to get the proper care about it, and the doctors that I was surrounded by didn't have the proper knowledge about it. Um, I had to just go through trial and error. So that's what happened. And by the time I was 28, man, it was out of, it was out of control to the point where I couldn't sleep. I was, I was getting maybe two to three hours of sleep that night max. And it was really messing with me. Like my mind was thrown off. Uh, I was just taking way too much medication because I, first of all, I wasn't sleeping. Second of all, I was in so much pain and they could just never understand what was going on with me. I had a point in time where it was like a whole two-year process where I felt like every single day, every night, I was going to the ER just to get injections inside my penis for it to go down. And then at that point, 
at that point, that's when the that's when the real damage started happening because what they're doing is they're, they're making a bigger mess. And by the time it was for me to have surgery, I had so much scar tissue due to me going to get the short term care at the ER, you know, which is them injecting it and then making it go down that way, and then I go home. And then the same night I go to sleep and I have to come back because it was really good. Man, it was every single medication that they ever thought of to give for prison. I was on it. I took it. Um, they just kept on upping my doses of pain medicine to the point that I was on 180 milligrams of narcotics every single day. And I just couldn't get a hold of this thing. So I started doing my own research. Um, I uh, moved to Orlando, Florida because the doctors that I was seeing in Atlanta you know, they just, I was I was 18, 21, 20, 22, and they just wanted to have, they just wanted to give me the surgery. It's like, so I need to have the surgery. And at this time, I was uh, in a relationship, and, you know, my partner, she was against it, she wasn't feeling it, but that was probably for her own selfish things. You know what I'm saying? That was for her own reasons. But at the same time, we still didn't have enough information for me to say, okay, let me go ahead and get the surgery. I didn't, you know, they weren't, they weren't teaching me and telling me you know, the ins and outs, the pros and the cons. I didn't feel like they knew what they were doing. I just felt like they wanted to just give me a surgery just to get it over with so they didn't have to keep seeing me. So thankfully, uh, I didn't just jump into surgery. I took about five, uh, I took about three or four years before that incident in Atlanta. I moved to Orlando, Florida. And while I was out here in Atlanta, Florida, man, first year was so rough for me. I, I literally couldn't sleep. Like, the prior prison was so bad for me. I was going out. By the time I moved here, I was going to the ER every single night with the driver. Wow. So I had made it up in my mind. I said, look, man, I, can't. I didn't move down here, you know, to be sick all the time and be dealing with this. So I said, I got to I gotta go ahead and get the surgery. By this time, I had already, I was already doing real research about priapism and penal prosthesis and shape procedures and all of that. So I kind of already knew what I wanted to do and I was just tired of battling it. So I went in there go to the hospital, I told them folks, look, I want to get a, a you know, prosthesis done so I can get rid of this. And, you know, they told me no. They told me I had to see a psychiatrist because this, yeah, they told me this is something you just come in here and say you want done. You know, we need you to speak to psychiatrist, a hospital psychiatrist. Um, they sent me, like, three urologists, three or four urologists that denied me. They didn't even want to do the procedure because they wanted to just give me medicine and see if it if the medication was. But I told them, I didn't have every medication in the book. They right. Viagra and Cialis, and you know, that's supposed to make the penis hard. Right. They're doing it. So they was trying to try everything in the book. They thought that they would counteract the fire prison and make it go down, which never, oh my God. their logic was all the way off, and I just never understood it. So I just went ahead and got the surgery done. There was one doctor that came and uh, agreed to do the surgery. His name is Dr. Patel. And, uh, man, he's a good dude. If you watch my documentary, it's uh, A Day in the Life of a Sickle Cell Soldier, Fire Prison Division. And you just hear nice. Dr. Patel. He's on there, and he's just so compassionate. He's talking to me, and he understands that I understand what's going on, you know, with, yeah. with the whole issue, and he just to help me. So it's, it was a blessing. And from that, yeah. um, I have... With the sickle cell consortium. After I got the prism, I had started. After I got the surgery, I started. Uh, I started working with the sickle cell consortium. You know, advocating and stuff, which was my first time ever doing any of that. And uh, I was selected to be the 20, 2019, 2020 
uh, sickle cell king prime prime king. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And they yeah. gave us a platform. They gave us a platform to uh, to speak on and something that we want to educate the community on. And I chose prime prison because I knew it was near and dear to me. And I knew that the education and the knowledge was out there, slim to none. So I wanted to share my story with it, and you know, just be able to shine a little light to see what it looks like to help people with it and let people know that they're not the only one they go to because prior prison with men is a very vulnerable, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a tricky topic, you know. A lot of men don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about their experiences, you know, with their So I'm just thankful that, you know, God put it in me to be able to be, you know, a light to be able to shine to let them know that it's okay, that this is an extension of sickness so that you shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed about it. And that's where Save the Mail Trunks came from. Um, I wanted to give a spin on it, like um, Karen Kerr did for the Save the Tatas with breast cancer. You know, on gotcha, cute. You know, take off the lid, you would save the Yoshi lids, or save the Tatas. Yeah. I thought that was real creative, so I wanted to do a spin off on that. And uh, I love um, African safari elephants. That's my favorite animal, just because of the strength and the, the meekness and the humbleness that they carry. And they're like a, a, a humble beast, like a humble giant. Uh, so I'm watching this documentary and what I was seeing was the villagers they were cutting off the trunks of the elephants and using it as an affirmation taking out of it hanging it up as like ornaments like on the wall you know how you get to cut a deer shoot a deer to hunt season the wall they would be just the elephant's trunks and without that the elephant can't really uh, process life because that's the way they feed themselves that's the way they drink that's the way they bathe themselves and uh Man, that's like the same thing with the males with the penis. You know, this is our manhood. This is how we produce life. You know, this is how we uh, this is how we carry ourselves. You know, and uh, I wanted to do it. I didn't want to be too derogative, so I just wanted to be save the male trunks. I thought it would be a good fit. Everyone, I know the world loves animals, so I figured the elephant would be a nice token of that. Uh, showing the trunk of the elephant representation of the male penis. Um, that's kind of a spin-off of that, and I just wanted to do something like that. I love it. I love it so much, and knowing, like, the history of it makes me love it even more. And you're right. Men, that's that's a very tricky topic to talk about priapism. So I'm thankful that you were given that platform and that it was put in your heart and on your mind to speak about it on a much a more broader um, spectrum on a broader platform. So I absolutely love that. Um, so let's talk about your artistry. Um, I've seen you do a little bit of everything. <laughs> when did it start? Will it Was it in the midst of you being sick as a kid and you were just writing? Or that's usually yeah, that's <laughs> how it starts. Okay. That's absolutely it. That's my therapy. So it's literally been my therapy. I feel like with sickle cell, in my life, like a young black man with sickle cell, I've never talked to a counselor. I've never had a therapy session. You know, I've never like went and expressed my life with sickle cell. I always had, you know, to put that down on paper. I always felt like music and writing has always been my outlet to just express myself. And school, I love to write, so I just applied that to my to my lifestyle. I just wanted to write my story and start thinking. And uh, that's where it really started, uh, just being my therapy, just being uh, a way to express myself, uh, a way to let myself know that, you know, even though you're going through this, you're still a winner. You're still, you know, still a man, you know, a 
faith of man of God and God still loves you. So sometimes you have to write those affirmations out and read them to yourself. It's a lot for us to be inside our head talking to ourselves because most of the time with sickle cell, we're on a lot of medication and we get a lot of different, you know, we get a lot of different sound bites in our head, you know what I'm saying? So I like to write down everything that I like to tell myself, my future self, my younger self, my people that, you know, that I love, that live with this people cell, and I just want them to be inspired. I want them to be encouraged and motivated and to know that they're not the only one going through this. And really, it started for myself, and it just flew out to people because my story is your story. My story is their story. So I'm just blessed to be able to share my experience, share my life story through art, through writing, through music. That's my real passion. That's my medicine. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. It's so funny because we I talked to Candice yesterday, um, the spoken word IMC Saint. And I told her like a lot of the advocacy work that I do is because I want better for myself. I'm the first person. Everybody else is just reaping the benefits of what I want for myself. You know what I'm saying? But it, it starts with you. I, I need to I need to have better for myself. And if it's not there, I'm going to go make what can I do to make it happen? What can I do to get better care for myself? And then it's going overflow into everybody else so yeah i definitely feel you on that when did you um realize that music was really what solidified it for you to start making putting these these words to music and putting out your music like what what was the light bulb moment? so when i was 15 i always wrote music but i was writing worldly music i wasn't writing my story i was writing my story but i was writing my hood story I was writing my black man from the ghetto story. You know what I'm saying? Which, after I sit down and I always listen to it, there's a million, there's a thousand rappers that's rapping that story. So I had to say, look, man, let me rap my sickle cell lifestyle. Let me rap my sickle cell story. I rarely hear that. And that the turning point for me was when I had moved out here to Orlando, Florida, and I, I had to be uh, 26, 27. After the after the surgery, it was after my prior prison surgery. I realized, dang, there's a whole community out here of sickle cell. Actually, people don't really know this, but 2017 was the first time I ever known that there was a sickle cell community. 2017 was the was the first time I ever went to a sickle cell convention. It was the first time I ever seen an assembly of people with sickle cell organizations from different states. I never knew that there was so much going on with sickle cell. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. I was left in, I feel like I was left in the dark. I thought I was the only child with sickle cell in the world for the longest. Like, I never had a sickle cell friend. I never had nobody in the hospital I could go to talk to. Oh, you got sickle cell? You in here too? Well, you know, I never had that living in Des Moines, Iowa as a young black man. So when I finally seen that in 2020, 2007, uh, 2017 was at the Sickle Cell Custodian Warriors Convention. Man, I was like, I was on fire. I was like, it was easy. Um, <laughs> I, I like, man, there's a whole world out here. There's a whole community out yeah. here. And I feel like I got yeah. to work. I feel like I got to tell my story with my brothers. And folks was already watching me on Instagram because I always told my story, like, on social media. Like, I'll be in the hospital and I'll be sharing, dropping little gems, motivating people. But it, it, I feel like that was just the beginning of it. For me to see that there was people that was going through what I was going through and they was tapping in in real life, 
that's what made me want to go ahead and say, let me tell, let me write my sickle skills, my sickle cell story so that people can relay in that, you know, they'll be able to get a piece of what they never said, you know, because there's a lot of people that's not voiceless for sickle cell. You know, they're not, not going to say nothing about it. They're rarely going to tell you if they have sickle cell. You would be in a room, they won't even mention that they have sickle cell. So I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to write about sickle cell to, to the person that never had a voice to speak about sickle cell, that they could feel it too, just through my life. So that's what, that's what motivates me right there. And that won't make said person feel alone and unseen because I really think that being in that environment with the consortium at the different conferences, you don't feel alone, you feel seen, you feel heard and you feel the love um, just being in that environment. And I think for me, those type of um, events are an extension of what camp was like for me as a kid. So I've been going to camp since I was 10. And of course, at sickle cell camp, you have your other friends with sickle cell. It's our normal here. Like, it's okay if such and such get in the pool and now she got to go to the infirmary because we was just having too much fun. You know what I'm saying? It was the normal. So a lot of times I feel like being in those conventions are just an extension of camp as a kid for me. So you're right. It's very empowering to be around all these other warriors and to see how they're using their platform to to advocate on a larger scale. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in love with the consortium because they just offer so much. And it's a home. When we get together, it's like a family reunion. It literally is <laughs> literally like a family reunion. So I, I feel you on that. Um, so I listened to, you have this podcast, The Soldier Strong Way. And I just want to briefly talk about it because I really want people to actually tune in to the podcast. But I caught the one on transitioning from um, unhealthy to healthy or opioids to no opioids. Let me first start with how long did that process take? So initially and naturally, the process took three years. That's when I wanted it. That's when I wanted it. That was the beginning when I wanted it. It took three years. Like the first two years, I couldn't even do it. It was just a thought in my mind that I really wanted to stop taking these opioids. And the reason that I always wanted to stop taking these opioids is because I felt like everything that's going on in the world, with me taking 80 mill- 180 milligrams of narcotics every day, say something drastic in the world happened and it was like mayhem in the world. And, um, House and, the house that went up in flames, the water that came crashing down, like it's mayhem in the world. And I'm put in a position to where I don't have this 180 milligrams throughout the day. I'm going down. Literally, that's how I was thinking in my mind. I'm like, man, if anything happened in the world, how am I going to be able to take care of myself without this 180 milligrams inside my body? One thing my body going to do to go into shock if I don't have that within a whole day's range, it's going to go into shock. It's going to shut down. Yeah. Yeah. I was scared of that, man. So, I, it, like, everything in me. And, and another thing, at that, when you just take that much narcotics throughout the day, you have a risk of so much. You have a risk of your heart stopping. You know, you have a risk of 
um, um, respiratory issues because you have too much too much chemical going on inside your body. I was just scared that me living alone, going to sleep on 180 milligrams a day that I might not wake up and, you know, I was scared that my folks would find me dead in my bed taking that much medicine. So I had to program my mind to get off of it. And really, it was it was a mental thing. And it was a lot of prayer. And it was a, a self-discipline because there were so many nights that when I was trying to get off of it, that my body was calling for the medicine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your body just like, man, I need that. You know, you stripping me of something. It was sleepless nights. But when I finally zoned in and focused really on it, it took two weeks. That was it. Wow, that makes sense. Ten days. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really got real disciplined. And um, I really just had to strip myself. It was uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. You have to have a lot of self-discipline. And you have to, you have, to have a lot of prayer. You have, to, you have to believe what you're praying. And you have to believe what you want. You know, you, you, there's times naturally in the flesh we get weak. And I wanted to get weak and just give in and say, all right. But if you think about it, after five, after five days... If you didn't win five days, come on, you got another five in you. Let's go. You know, don't, don't, and that's what I always motivated myself. Don't go, don't get backtracked because it's so easy to go backwards with the medicine. Because naturally, we're in pain all the time. I know I am. Naturally, I'm in pain all the time. I'm dealing with a vascular necrosis at these day and age, and my body just be aching. And with the weather changing now, you know, all of these things come into factor. You know what I'm saying? So. I wanted to escape Western medicine because I felt like my whole life, I, I didn't know myself without taking medicine. Since sixth grade, I was getting Demerol, you know what I'm saying? And I was, uh, I never knew Demetrius Wyatt without narcotics. And I wanted to meet him. I wanted to see my mind free. I wanted to be able to, you know, not be so sluggish and handle my business as a businessman. How can I be out here conducting business catering for folks and making music and doing all this speaking engagements, motivating people. And I'm on 180 milligrams of narcotics. I'm in a stopper, man. There's no way. You can't. You can't. You can't. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that transition and what it took to really go through that. Because for me, I'm I'm on one minute and I'm off one minute. And what what I'm realizing is either you all in or you all out. You can't. You can't be on that seesaw. And I feel the difference every time, too. So it does take a lot of it starts with the it starts with the mind, just making it up in your mind that this is what you want to do and this is how you need to do it. Um, One of the things one of my hiccups with trying to switch was replacing something for the pain because at first my mind was like I don't want to take no pain meds I'm good but the reality is you in pain and you need to do something about it so um that's why I love holistic hemp and Dr. Rashawn Hodge because he they provide those alternatives to the opioids and they really look out for us and it's been super helpful for me to um stop taking the opioids and just to I can actually go to sleep and rest good wake up refreshed the next morning ready to go so (laughs) so yeah but I want people to understand that it's not just stopping the opioids like you have to create an entire lifestyle around your healthy and your best self so that does mean changing what you eat 
not just for a week, not just for a fast, but permanently. Yeah, permanently. Um, and just changing a lot of people's habits. And it's, pe- it's hard for some people to get out of that. And they're just comfortable where they at. And that's their business. <laughs> but I'm like you. Um, I just got to a point. I was in the hospital like every three months at one point. And I was working, I had a government job at that time. And even then I was like, something has to shift so I can put my health first, but still be able to do something that's bringing in income and do something that I love. So that collaboration is how I ended up doing the advocacy work that I'm doing, just so that I can put my health first. Because you really can't do nothing or be of service to anybody if your health isn't where it's supposed to be, you know? So that's awesome. Um, what were my other questions? What do you say to people? We're going to switch to your catering. What do you say to people for one who say that this healthy lifestyle is expensive? Like how do you manage it on a very limited income? Um, so it's really not expensive. Uh, it just depends on the foods that you go buy and the foods that you choose to eat. Like, when I talk about health and wellness and nutrition, I'm thinking about raw fruits and vegetables. That's it. Like, when you want to get fancy and you try to buy exquisite, exclusive stuff, then it does get a little pricey. But if you're sticking with the basic hydration fruits and vegetables, then, you know, you get that at, you get that at your local farmer's market grocery store for a um, dollar plus. You know, a pound, you know, so people say that I just say, you know, you just got to find the right, you just got to find the right stores. And at this time with food being a little pricey in, in the world right now, yeah, but at the same time, it's a balance. You got to balance. So what I learned in, in, in America food and America, the American diet is so much packaged and boxed and canned and already ready food, which is not food at all. That's what's actually in the diseases. So you got to get on a more ground food. I don't even like to say a plant-based diet because a plant-based diet can consist of a lot of, um, what is that, uh, processed foods. Uh, yeah. So a lot, like a lot of like like tofu and like yeah. chicken. The soy. Yeah, the soy. I can't, get, I can't get with none of that. Like the way where I'm at in life is cut out all the process. Anything that's processed, don't put in your body. That's what I think about health and wellness. And when I when I talk about food, I'm talking about brown food, yam, potatoes, things that are grown from soil. You know, that's ground food. That's what you want to put in your body. That stuff don't cost a lot of money. The stuff that's costing yeah. a lot is the vegan, the vegan options that people are mm-hmm. buying, and it's all the packaged food. But really, mm-hmm. all you need is like some good grains, some good rices, some potatoes, starches, yams, protein. And that's all you need. But a lot of people don't think that they can get protein from plants. And um, there's more protein in plants. Kale has as much protein as one New York strip steak. <laughs> wow. Interesting. People don't even know that. So mm-hmm. kale is like a real superfood. And these are the green and leafy foods that we need. And we're just not taught that. The American diet is fast food. It's... Um, what tastes good, junk food, little Debbie's chips, snacks, all of these chemicals that are being mixed inside our DNA that's not giving us a healthy body. So that's why, that's what I looked at in my life. I used to love little Debbie's, you know, snacks, 
fast food and, you know, hot wings, fried this, fried that. Every time I looked up, I was always sick in the hospital. Even when I, even when I know I'm exercising, I'm trying to do right, I'm still sick because everything what I put in my body is wrong. So nutrition is nutrition can be expensive when you're buying a lot of packed food, but a lot of people don't understand. You got to get in the kitchen and cut up food, cut up food, get the cutting board out, get your knife sharpened up, and prep up this food for yourself. That's when you're going to get the most nutrition out of the most out of the best foods, the food that you got to work with. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and I I like to think too that. Um, it can be healthy living can be expensive, but also you're either going to pay now in the food. You can buy the higher quality food so you'll have a better quality of life or you can buy the trash food and spend the money in medical bills and medications. And so you're going to pay on either end. Um, so is what sacrifice do you want to make? You want to make that sacrifice now or you want to make that sacrifice later? So. And it's about the food, you know? It's about yeah. um what I've learned also is when I used to eat a lot of American food, how I used to eat was I used to eat fat after the fill up my plate to the max and then get you know, I eat to get full. That's you know, that's that's how I was eating. But now I eat to get fuel. You know what I'm saying? I'm fueling my body instead of trying to get full. I'm just putting in my body what I need for energy and nutrition to keep me going. So I'm eating less of what I used to eat. So it's not so expensive. I shop one time a week for myself. But when I cater, I'm always at the grocery store. I'm sure. <laughs> myself, I shop one time, one time. Every Wednesday I go to the supermarket. I shop for myself. I buy one pineapple, one honeydew, one watermelon. And all of this is, I do everything with seeds. If I don't have seeds, I'm not buying yeah. I buy one pineapple, one honeydew, one watermelon. I buy a bag of apples. I buy five lemons, five limes. Um, I buy kiwi. I buy uh, almonds, rice, uh, Dave's Killer Bread, organic bread, um, uh, coconut milk. Everything I do is coconut oil, coconut milk. uh, Everything is more coconut derivative now instead of almond. Like almond milk is cool and all that, but uh, still, that's you know process. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, that's what I do. And when I go to the grocery store and cash out for myself, I'm spending like fifty, sixty dollars weekly for me to eat. And that's good. Yeah, and a lot of people still think that oh, you know, you can't eat meat. See, here's the thing: I eat meat, but I don't eat meat all throughout the week. I pick my days when I want to have my chicken. Really, that's only. Chicken, turkey, poultry is the only um, meat that I'm eating, consuming. I got away from the red meats, haven't ate pork in 10 plus years. So I minimize, you know, my intake because what I learned is when you put animal products in your body, you know, your body still has to break down so much, has to do so much. And then you get the effects of different hormones, whatever the, whatever the animal product ate, that's what you're going to intake. So, you know, you just got to get a little more insight on this stuff, which a lot of us, the sickest of black people, we just don't have this type of insight. We don't have the education and the knowledge on nutrition or how to eat. You know, we eat whatever's convenient for us, whatever's right now. Oh, that's that's what it is? You grab, you about to grab a value? Grab me one, grab me number two. Yeah. 
fried, no salt. And the sizes have gotten bigger at the fast food restaurants. The sizes have gotten bigger. It's it's crazy. And I'm like, I was at the drive-through, and I guess the person was being nice and gave me a large. I'm like, no, I ordered a small intentionally. Right. It's portion control. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I didn't want the whole drink. Don't be nice to me. I appreciate it, but don't be nice. <laughs> Give me what I asked for. So yeah, it's and it's it's. It's a science. I think it's a science in really trying to figure out what diet or what eating pattern works for you. Because what may work for you may not work for me and vice versa. So it's definitely a science. Yeah, it's a science to figure out what works for you. Like you mentioned before, you mentioned all the time about your beet smoothies, which is great for most people. Or anybody who has to have blood transfusion, sickle cell or not, or who deals with the low hemoglobin. For me, I would need to watch how much of the smoothies that I drink because low hemoglobin isn't my issue. For someone with sickle cell type SC, I live at a hemoglobin 10-11 and most people can't even imagine being at a 10-11, you know? So I would have to be mindful of my intake of beet smoothies, for example, so that my hemoglobin doesn't get too high. So I really feel like our people need to be not only more educated on nutrition and and, and things like that, but also on the actual disease that they live with, because a lot of them still have no idea, like really don't know. Not to the degree that I feel like they should. And, you know, I was, and that was my issue. When I was young and coming up living in Iowa, I was so ignorant to sickle cell. I felt like I was 20 and I couldn't even articulate sickle cell. All I can tell you is that I was born with it and I, I'm in a lot of pain, chronic pain. Like I couldn't give you layman terms. I couldn't really professionally articulate in, in, in doctor profession words. You know, you, we have to start speaking professional terminology because we're the professionals. You know, we are the, the more experienced ones. And I hadn't realized that, so I started really studying sickle cell. When I went to college, every single essay, every paper that I did was on sickle cell. Every, I dove deep in. Like I, I did not want to not know what was going on with my body. Like I really studied sickle cell inside of me. I realized what was going on, what, what I could, what, you know, how my exertion levels would be. If I overexert myself, I already knew what my consequences would be. I already knew if I eat this, what was going to go on with myself. You know, you, you gotta, you know, even the words say that, man, study to show thyself approved. And that's really what you gotta do with sickle cell. You do. You, really you do. absolutely do. If you wanna live a well life and you wanna figure out how to, like, cause you know, we all live in the essence of, dang, man, I tried this, I tried that, ain't man, really working. You know, the, and then we get so caught up in, and the fact of the matter is, I got sickle cell. That's what it is. It is what it is. I'm sick, though. I gotta go to the hospital. I'm gonna get pain. And we live with that, not knowing that there's a better way for us. There's, you're supposed to live your, your most natural and, you know, potential self, your, your best you. You know what I'm saying? That's what you're designed to do. Even, when, even if you were born with a sickness, you know, there's, I never thought I would be, I never thought health and wellness was for me. But I did after I started learning the human body. I started learning the reason why I was really unhealthy was because of my lack of information, my lack of knowledge. And what I was doing, my body was really what was hurting me. So when I got an understanding of that, then I started changing and I really started seeing it. Start minimizing my hospital visits, my crisis. Uh, 
uh, I started getting less pain crisis. And all of this is because of what I put in my body, what I flew in my body. Good. Good. I, I love those stories. I really do. There's a support group here with a doctor who has SS and he's a naturopathic doctor. So he dives deep into all of the herbs, all of the supplements, all of the veggies and fruits. And that's what his support group is based around. So ha- having that information on a more broader scale um, and as much as we love the pharmaceutical companies for helping us with treatments and things, um, there needs to be a balance of alternative care as well. There needs to be some self-accountability in our health, in our treatment, because a lot of us just put our health in the hands of the doctors in the healthcare system. And to be quite honest, there's not a good <laughs> rapport with our community and the healthcare system. So... It's just a matter of taking that self-accountability and that self-reliance and self-discipline to get to a better you. Um, I think that's it. Let me see. Oh, I did want to ask you this. I sometimes feel like cooking is an art form. Like when you take a blank canvas, let's say we making spaghetti. When you make your t- when you make your own spaghetti sauce. Tomatoes is the blank canvas. You add your herbs and spices, which is the colors or the flavors. And that's how I have to, when I'm in the kitchen, that's what I'm doing. I'm really like painting in the kitchen or something, you know. But it, and it's, it's very therapeutic for me when I like do my own Chipotle bowl at home and hook up everything, you know. So do you feel like that with your catering and what you're cooking? All the time. It's a, it's a love. It's a passion that burns deep. Um, the, the same way I feel about music is the same way I feel about cooking. Um, it's an energy that I've channeled that, you know, is a healing vibration for me because the things that I'm doing, I'm doing with so much love and I'm doing it with a passion, knowing that I'm helping and that I'm healing and that these foods are going to, you know, bring nutrition to the body. It's a great feeling, man. Every time I'm in the kitchen, yeah. I love. I got the music yeah. playing. Miles came with Ellen, Tim, John, Cole, Billy Bob, and out to Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it's the whole vibe when you're in the kitchen, and it's yeah, it's an entire vibe. I always tell people like I be I'm on support groups talking to people, and I'm like, man, get in the kitchen and cook, turn some music on, yeah. and have fun. Oh, yeah. Like do the dishes, clean up, make messes, spill stuff. That's the essence of love. Like we got to get back to that. You know, we've been so accustomed to going to grab something, going to order something, and it just being dropped off, and you know, we eat, watch TV, and go to sleep. And then, you know, the cycle is an unhealthy cycle. You know what I'm saying? So we can't really, in life, we can't really see everything that's going on in real time. It takes time to develop. You know what I'm saying? Then you realize, damn, it's like 10 years and I'm still having the same habits and no wonder I feel how I feel. But when I got rid of the opioids out of my body and all of that and I start eating right, man, I'm, I feel like my younger self. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm at the point that I, I have energy. You know what I'm saying? I can move. I can handle my business. I'm doing more in a 24-hour span than what a regular person is doing without sickness. So, I'm handling my we business. We see it. Yeah, we see it. I see it in, in just how you move and what you do. So, I love, 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 love the energy. Love the spirit. You think we can get, like, a sickle cell cookbook out of you? Oh, we are. We're going to get a couple of them out of you. 
Uh, oh, nice! I'm working on that right now. I got a couple of books that I'm working on right now for the for the for the community and for my. Oh, people. I cannot wait! Absolutely, I cannot wait. I so, it. how can people follow you? You can follow me um, everywhere. Uh, I'm everywhere but nowhere. Artheprofit.com. That's my website. Uh, Artheprofit on every single social media platform. Uh, Ar the P R O P H E T. Save the mail trunks. Yeah. ARTheprofit.com. Tap in with me. Uh, music, catering, sickle cell advocacy, and just natural herbs and health and wellness, man. That's that's what I'm big on and just leading my people into a healthy lifestyle, baby. Love it. Love it. We could have really talked for hours, but you know, <laughs> we two business owners and we got stuff to do. Absolutely. So I appreciate you coming on and talking with me. It's always a pleasure. Oh, I'm going to get a picture of this. I know this is, so this is an audio so the people can't see, but in preparation for this uh, podcast that we're doing today, I decided to put on my shirt that Demetrius sent me some years ago with his Rose Petals album. And he shows up with my SCA 365 hoodie. Like that was just so dope to me. Yeah. <laughs> And what does it say on the back? Soldier Strong? Soldier Strong. Yeah. So I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, bro. I love you. And just keep doing, keep shining. Thank you so much, dude. You keep doing what you're doing. I love you. I'm proud of you. It's good to see you happy, healthy, and thriving. Thank you. Thank you. So appreciate it. Just stay, hang on for a minute until we say this. And then. Shout out to the Silver Absolutely. Hey, y'all. We love y'all. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Vitamin SC3 podcast. We hope that you will leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Remember, a new episode is coming out next Monday. So please tune in and enjoy. Enjoy.